мною принято решение о проведении специальной военной операции. Сегодня Россия начала вторгнення в Украину. Путин начал войну с Украиной, с всем демократическим миром. Early Thursday morning, the thing that U.S. intelligence has been warning about for weeks finally happened. Russia launched attacks on cities across Ukraine. This is a horrific turn of events in world history. Russia is an incredibly powerful military, and it's unleashing its full military might against a neighboring, much less powerful state. And we're witnessing that in real time. We're seeing... Ukrainians suffering deeply, fearing for their lives, fleeing their cities, moving their children into bomb shelters. And because Russia is a nuclear power, people in the United States and in Europe are feeling quite powerless to do anything about it. On Thursday afternoon, President Biden announced more sanctions from the U.S. and its allies. We will limit Russia's ability to do business in dollars, euros, pounds, and yen to be part of the global economy. But it doesn't seem like any of that is going to deter Russian President Vladimir Putin. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, February 24th. Today, we're hearing from our colleagues who are on the ground in Ukraine about what it's been like since these full-scale attacks began. It just felt sort of surreal or unbelievable that it would actually happen. Um, and a lot of Ukrainians I talked to said, we're just going to go about our days as normal. We can't live with the fear constantly. And just hours later, we wake up to the sound of explosions in the Ukrainian capital. We're also talking to reporter Paul Sony. He has spent years reporting from Russia and Ukraine. He was there for the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And he has some insights into Putin's calculus and whether Russian forces can be stopped. So, Paul, tell me exactly how this all unfolded in the wee hours of Thursday morning in Ukraine. Vladimir Putin came on television. He made an announcement saying that he had approved a military operation against eastern Ukraine. But it was very clear from his statements that that operation was not going to be limited to eastern Ukraine. And within minutes of him making that statement, Suddenly, there were explosions in cities across Ukraine, outside of Kiev, outside of Kharkiv, outside of cities in the south. And it was clear that the Russian military had immediately started its campaign to completely dismantle the Ukrainian military and its forces that were arrayed along the border in order to repel a Russian force. And that has simply escalated. Uh, we've seen that not only did they try to bomb and dismantle all of the Ukrainian military's infrastructure. Now they are starting to roll tanks already across the border from Crimea, from Belarus, from Russia into Ukraine and trying to, it seems like, hold territory. You know, we have heard for weeks warnings about a potential false flag coming from Russia, that they were going to essentially invent circumstances that would theoretically justify uh, their use of military action. In terms of what we saw actually transpire, how close was that to what we'd been hearing about? I actually think this is one of the biggest 
unexpected turn of events that we saw in the last hours. U.S. intelligence had been preparing, um, trying to call out in real time the possibility of Russia staging a false flag operation, creating a false pretext. And in the end, Putin just didn't care. Putin just decided that I'm going to suffer the effects of this invasion, and I don't even need a reason. Hmm. I, I'm just going to come on television and say I'm sick of this conflict that's been going on for eight years in East Ukraine, and I've decided that now the time has come to do something about it. Hmm. And I don't need to pretend that something— It didn't something, need to be that complicated. It didn't need to be that complicated. And I think that's what—I think that's one of the things that is so shocking about what's going on right now. In 2014, Putin was responding to events, right? There was a— pro-Europe uprising in Kiev that pushed out a pro-Russian government, and he was responding to that. This was just, he chose a day on the calendar and decided, this is the day I'm going to, I'm going to take Ukraine. Wow. Can you describe some of what you've heard about what it's been like for Ukrainians watching this invasion begin? You know, this is a very terrifying thing. You know, Ukraine is an incredibly large country uh, with more than 40 million people. And This is a war where Russia has air supremacy. Ukraine only has minimal air defenses. It has a very minimal air force. And what that means is that out of the gate, Russia basically has the power to drop bombs, send missiles flying into whatever targets they want, and there's not so much the Ukrainians can do to stop them. And that makes for an extremely terrifying situation on the ground. So what you're seeing in Kiev, in Kharkiv, and other cities, people are going into the metro, which is very far below ground um, and was built to double as a fallout shelter um, in some of these cities. You're seeing people trying to flee the country westward from Kiev. People are obviously extremely distressed and very worried about what's coming next. Many Ukrainians are seeking shelter, and some are trying to leave the country. But gas stations have long lines, and traffic is backed up. Our colleagues in the eastern city of Kharkiv spoke to a couple who were trying to figure out what to do. But they said that it was hard to even find good information about what's going on. Here is one of the people that they talked to outside the train station, Emil Nagoyak. The government has said nothing. They are silent. So it's very difficult to organize ourselves. That's why everybody's just going up and down. We don't know what to do. People are trying to leave the country, the the city. But how do you leave if you don't know what's happening like out of the city? Where are you going to? You know, it's not like you can evacuate Kharkiv and go to Kyiv for safety. Because Kyiv's under attack too. Isabel Krushudian is our Moscow correspondent reporting from eastern Ukraine. The lack of preparation was really shocking to me because... This is something that a lot of people in the West were screaming about for a very long time. And you kind of saw it, you know, starting to happen here, even over, you know, the past week talking. Kharkiv is, you know, only 25 miles from the Russian border. This would be, should be a city that had its guard up as much as any. And I remember a couple days ago, we were asking people and they were like, no, I haven't packed an emergency bag. No, I don't have food. And that was just kind of the attitude that oh, it's not going to happen. We've lived with Russian aggression for eight years since Putin seized Crimea, and we just don't believe this will really happen. Um, And one woman today said, you know, for a country that calls itself a brotherly nation of Ukraine, this felt like a betrayal. 
Another of our colleagues was reporting today from a train station in Kiev. Here's Whitney Shefty. It was just full of people trying to get out of town. And so many of those people were stuck outside, unable to get tickets um, just because everything was sold out. A lot of people were trying to go west because they feel like that's, that's safer towards Lviv, maybe Poland. But, you know, just lots of really frustrated people trying to figure out what they could do. It was we were in shooting uh, and we were far, far, far away from Ireland. I talked to one woman who had been at the airport. She had just come from Germany and was on a layover. And all of a sudden, here's an announcement that they have to run, that the, the, they were told that the airport was being attacked and were you know, shuffled out of there really, really quickly. And you know, she described this very harrowing, terrifying experience. Um, and then there she was at the, the train station, unable to, to get back home. I, I don't know what can I do. <laughs> so I, I'm waiting for my train. I hope they will come. I hope. So, Paul, can you tell me what Russian President Vladimir Putin said as these attacks began on cities across Ukraine? In the very early hours on Thursday morning, Putin posted a video speech where he said that he had decided to conduct a military operation in the Donbass region in Ukraine. He said that his goal for the military operation was the denazification and demilitarization of Ukraine. He did not say what his vision for how this would end would be. He claimed he didn't want to occupy Ukraine, but suggested that he was uh, looking to hold to account Ukrainian leaders and Ukrainians who were involved in prosecuting the conflict in the east of Ukraine. And suggested that what would be coming after this is some kind of Russia-friendly version of Ukraine that he wants to see. Hmm. You know, when I listened to some parts of that speech that were translated, I mean, frankly, a lot of it I didn't understand. But specifically this term, denazification, and him talking about Nazis in Ukraine. And frankly, my brain was like, what? Nazis in Ukraine? Like, how did we start talking about that? And how is that Putin's rationalization here? Can you unpack a little bit about what he was referring to and whether that is true at all? So this is a consistent theme we have been seeing in Russian state messaging and propaganda since 2014 when this conflict first started. So before Russia annexed Crimea and fueled this separatist war in East Ukraine, one of the main talking points was that the Western-leaning government that had pushed out Viktor Yanukovych, the pro-Russian president of Ukraine, and taken power in Kiev, was essentially a bunch of Nazis who had taken power Hmm. as a junta in Kiev and were conducting a genocide against Russian-speaking, ethnically Russian people in Ukraine. Hmm. So this has been a constant on Russian state television uh, for the last eight years. Is that true? 
No, that's not true. Um, it's actually a very complicated topic. You could write a whole book on this, but this plays into some of the most emotional thoughts that Russians uh, have. You know, when you think about Nazis, this is a country, the Soviet Union lost 26 million people during World War II. Mm -hmm. it, it is not on the scale of the United States. This is a completely different thing for them. And so when the government compares people to Nazis, it has a really strong emotional effect among Russians. Mm. Now, there's a history to this. There were elements of very nationalist Ukrainians during World War II who, when the Nazis and Hitler turned against the Soviet Union when they didn't want to be controlled by Moscow. Mm -hmm. So it was a kind of, your enemy is my enemy is my friend. So that there was this alliance between Nazi Germany there and were, there were, Ukrainians. There were ties between extreme Ukrainian nationalists and the Reich. And so this is something that has been sort of resurrected uh -huh. in order to stir emotions among Russians. There are also far-right elements within Ukraine itself. It does have neo-Nazis, but so, so does actually some of the Russian militias uh, mm -hmm. that have been involved in Donbass. Well, that, then my question is, if Vladimir Putin is trying to tap into this wellspring of emotion by using these really charged terms or ideas and talking about Nazis and Ukraine and that Russia is really on the defense here and trying to defend itself against these Ukrainian Nazis. Like, is that working? Are, are Russians who are hearing these state messages compelled by that and saying like, yeah, this is a war that we feel like we are willing to fight? I think certainly they were compelled by that in 2014. And the annexation of Crimea was extremely popular. And certainly one of the ways to sell a conflict to the Russian population is to say, look, there are Russian speakers, people who speak Russian as their first language in East Ukraine. There are people, they are us. We need to protect them from this nationalist government that is abusing them from its position of power in Kiev, backed by the United States and the rest of the West. I, I'm not in Russia at the moment, so I can't say exactly how Russians feel. And Putin has really done a lot in the last couple of years to lock down the ability of anyone to demonstrate. Mm. But I do think this is different from 2014. Mm. I do think that a large-scale open invasion of Ukraine where Russian aircraft and Russian missiles are attacking targets deep within Ukraine, I think a lot of Russians are horrified by this. Mm. Um, you know, Putin likes to claim we are one people between Russia and Ukraine. You know, there, there are deep interlinkages between these two countries. Russians have been to Ukraine. Russians know Ukrainians. Many Russians have relatives in Ukraine. Uh -huh. um, for Russian bombs to drop on those cities, people know about that. Well, I thought it was really fascinating. We saw President Zelensky of Ukraine release this message that was basically a direct appeal to Russians saying, look, you know, you're, you're our only hope in preventing this from escalating into a full-blown war. We totally know we don't need a war. It's not cold, it's not hot, can you talk a little bit about that message and how Zelensky is approaching this moment? Yeah. You know, Zelensky released this speech in Russian. He usually speaks Ukrainian. Uh, it was a direct appeal to the Russian people, essentially saying to them, we don't want war with you. We don't want this. We want peace. Please, you know, hold your leadership to account and tell them not to do this. Война — это большая беда, и у этой беды 
большая цена во всех смыслах этого слова. He released that only hours before this all started. So uh, this was basically in the middle of the night. Russians wouldn't even have seen this before they realized that that mm -hmm. the Russian military had invaded Ukraine. So it was quite late to do something like that. Certainly it wouldn't be carried on Russian state media. So there's also a question of how many Russians would actually see his remarks. But what he was trying to say was, we aren't threatening you. Uh, you know, we are just trying to have our own country and determine our own future, and we are not trying to threaten your country, as you're being told. Вам говорят, что Украина может представлять угрозу для России. Этого не было в прошлом, нет сейчас, не будет в будущем. One of the things he said was that the Ukraine you see on television, the Ukraine that your government is telling you about, is not the same as the Ukraine that we know. And the main difference is that our Ukraine is real. And he addressed a lot of the Russian state propaganda talking points head on. He said, you know, we're not a country of Nazis. I am not a Nazi. Zelensky is Jewish. He talked about how his grandfather fought for the Soviet military in World War II against the Nazis. And he also talked about how, you know, the country's are close, but this is a different country. So he, on the one hand, said, look, this is our country. It's not for you to decide, um, you know, its future. On the other hand, he said, so many Russians have relatives in Ukraine. You know Ukrainians. You have Ukrainian friends. Do we seem like these monsters, essentially, that we're being made out to be? We're not. So how is Ukraine preparing to defend itself here? I mean, you, you mentioned that the Russian military is far superior. So what can Ukrainians do to try to stop this? The Ukrainians, I think, have tried to prepare as much as they could. I think they've taken, you know, weapons shipments from the United States, from other European countries to try to be as prepared as they could. That said, Russia has a world-class military that prepares for peer competitors like the United States and China. Mm -hmm. um, Ukraine's military is not a match for Russia's. Um, Ukraine has virtually no Navy or Air Force. I mean, they have them, but it's, it's extremely minimal. Russia has a huge Navy, a huge Air Force. It has an Air Force that is very practiced with conducting precision strikes from Syria. 92% um, of Russian pilots at some point rotated through Syria, doing strikes, getting experience in an actual conflict zone. So we're not talking about peers that are that are matched. And Ukrainian officials have been talking about essentially arming citizens, right? Of of giving citizens firearms to help join the defense, which I mean seems like a pretty last ditch effort and hard to imagine that being incredibly effective. Yes, I think basically the idea is that once Ukraine's official forces are no longer able to do anything, it would essentially turn into an insurgency where individual armed Ukrainians would kind of be pushing back on their own. We have no idea whether that's going to happen or what it's going to look like, in part because we don't know fully what Russia's plans are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we see this multi-prong invasion uh, that seems like they're going to try to cut Kiev off from the rest of the country, possibly encircle Ukrainian forces and force them to surrender. But then what? 
we don't know what comes after that. And I think as a lot of Americans learned in 2003 during the invasion of Iraq, this shock and awe stage of a war, uh, when you're talking about a huge military like Russia's or that of the United States, that's the easy part. Hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you do after that? Mm -hmm. What is the plan after that? And does the plan work after that? Hmm. Well, can you talk about where has been targeted with these strikes so far and what that tells us about what Russia's strategy might be here? So actually, Russia has been following its military strategy and its its military doctrine almost to a T. Hmm. So what you're seeing out of the gate is strikes against the Ukrainian military, all of the Ukrainian military's infrastructure, against Ukrainian forces that might pose a threat to the incoming Russian forces. Um, and so all of the strikes, or most of the strikes we've seen so far, have been all focused on basically decimating the Ukrainian military so Russian ground forces can go in with relatively little resistance. That is what it was expected. At the same time, Putin in his remarks essentially way, you know, rattled the nuclear saber, suggesting that anyone who wants to get involved in this, anyone who thinks they're going to intervene in what I'm doing in Ukraine, will face, he said, extremely disastrous consequences, the likes of which you've never seen, which is kind of parlance for, hey, and by the way, we're crazy enough to use nuclear weapons if you try to intervene in this conflict. Oh, wow. So, so that's really on the table. It's part of Russian military doctrine because they know that their conventional military in many ways is not as powerful as that of the United States. And so in a conflict with the United States, they would rely on their nuclear deterrent to prevent the United States from entering that conflict. Mm. And so this is a kind of a classic tenet of Russia's military doctrine that in a situation like this, where they want to make sure that they're going to keep NATO and, and the U.S. out of this conflict zone. But they, they're going to keep talking about nuclear weapons. They're going to wave say, their nuclear just weapons. Just so you remember, and like, just, we've yeah. got them and we're we're able to use them. We're got them. We've got them and we're crazy enough to use them. Hmm. We see that they're targeting all of these Ukrainian military targets first, but we don't know what's coming next. So he's claimed that he's not planning to occupy parts of Ukraine. So is this going to be an operation after the Ukrainian military is decimated to push over the government and install some sort of Russian government, pro-Russian government? Mm -hmm. um, how much of the territory are they going to hold for, how long are they going to hold parts of territory and then try to hold referenda like they did with Crimea, essentially saying that the people's will is to be part of Russia or the people's will is to be part of this independent East Ukraine state that we're going to back. We just really don't know what their political plans are. And ultimately, war is a political thing. Mm -hmm. So... You can talk about the ground strategy to try to encircle Kiev, cut the capital off from military forces. But as I think Americans have quite painfully learned, the end state of a war is ultimately political. Mm -hmm. uh, we do not know how Russia plans to execute its political goals. And that's the big question here. That's the big question. You know, Paul, we heard from colleagues who were reporting from train stations in Kiev and Kharkiv. A lot of people are trying to leave Ukraine. Where are they going to and how are they being received? Like, are other countries ready to welcome Ukrainian refugees? So one of the problems is that once Russia starts flying missiles through the air, you know, they close the airspace of Ukraine very quickly. And Ukraine is a giant country. 
And so if you're in Kiev, uh, you're not going to go north to the Belarusian border where Russian forces are coming over. You're not going to go east to the Russian border. Um, you have to go west, and that is extremely, extremely far if you can't fly and the roads are completely clogged. You're not the only person trying to do that. So I think people are finding themselves in a really difficult situation. In the West, Ukraine borders um, Moldova, Romania, Hungary, and Poland. I, I think Poland, especially Romania, they have said that they will welcome Ukrainians in as refugees. Actually, there's over a million Ukrainians in Poland already who are there and part of the conflict that started in 2014. So I think we're just starting to see the beginning of those migration flows now. And what Russia decides to do will have a huge impact on how that unfolds. After the break, I talked to Paul about sanctions against Russia and why this conflict in Ukraine is already having an impact on Americans. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to talk about sanctions. The U.S. and other countries have already announced a lot of sanctions against Russia. There has been this question of how effective those will be. What are we seeing in terms of more sanctions and whether there are any levers left to pull on that would prevent Putin from escalating this further? I don't see any sanctions that are going to, especially at this point, prevent him from trying to execute his plan. On Thursday, we saw the White House come out and levy serious sanctions against Russia, hitting the Russian financial sector, as well as export controls uh, that would try to squelch the growth of the Russian economy going forward. Um, these were signaled pretty strongly in advance by the White House. They had hoped that the threat of this would prevent Vladimir Putin from doing what he was planning to do. And the European Union acted has acted in lockstep. They announced their measures at the same time. This comes on the heels of other sanctions. Actually, when Putin, an, a couple of days ago, he recognized the independence of these Russian-backed separatist republics in eastern Ukraine. Uh, that triggered sanctions. Nord Stream 2, the pipeline from Russia to Germany, was immediately canceled by the German government. And then sanctions were placed on two Russian banks, as well as a number of individuals in Russia, which includes two children of some of Putin's closest advisors. That said, Putin's already made his decision. How that will affect Putin's decision-making in the short term, I don't see that happening. That said, in the long term, you know, I think this will obviously result in the further isolation of Russia uh, from the rest of the world and from the global economy, especially from the European and the American economy. And that can have effects that we really can't predict. The one thing that is happening is, and, and I, I doubt this is an accident, Putin chose a moment of 
rising energy prices to do this. Hmm. Um, This has sent oil prices soaring back to levels that we haven't seen in years. And you're talking about for everyone, for for Americans including. For everyone, for everyone. So what does he know? He knows that there's a huge sensitivity domestically in the United States and in, in countries in Europe to rising gas prices. He knows that rising energy prices are good for him because Mm. much of Russia's money comes from selling energy. So that adds an extra pressure point that he has against the West and how drastically they are able to respond to him because Joe Biden said it publicly. He doesn't want this huge spike in gas prices that's actually already occurring Mm -hmm. um, for Americans. That is politically untenable for him. As we respond... My administration is using the tools, every tool at its disposal, to protect American families and businesses from rising prices at the gas pump. You know, we're taking active steps to bring down the cost, and American oil and gas companies should not, should not exploit this moment to hike their prices to raise profits. Hmm. So if you're saying that Putin is in a position of relative economic power here, and that he also just doesn't care about these sanctions or doesn't care enough about them to stop what he's doing, then what could be done to prevent this from becoming a bigger war? Like, is there anything that can be done? I think the U.S. strategy has been to try to figure out how they can help the Ukrainians raise the cost for the Russians. Um, What can you give to the Ukrainians in order to make sure that as Russia continues with this, it is not going to be painless Hmm. and possibly affect the calculus of the Kremlin as a result? There are people who have called for far more severe uh, measures than what the Biden administration has signaled it has prepared so far. There are a lot of people who want Russia to be cut off from the SWIFT payment system, which would cause financial disarray in the short term possibly not in the long term, but in the short term for Russia's sales of goods abroad. So there are certainly extra measures that can be taken. In fact, sanctioning Putin himself has been suggested, which is fairly unprecedented for a world leader of a country like Russia. And what do you mean by sanctioning him as a person? Like, what what does that mean? He can't come to Europe. He can't come to the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, that's a big deal. I mean, like, does he care, right? Like, in the middle of this war, does he care if he can travel to the U.S. or if he's able to travel there in the future? No, clearly, I mean, Putin knew all of these possibilities in advance. Mm-hmm. We've written stories about them. Everyone's written stories about them. There's no way that the Russian government and his advisors did not take into calculation the possibility of of you know what would be the response from the West. And clearly they decided that this is worth it. Hmm. They have decided that this is a core national security interest of them. Situation in Ukraine is intolerable to them. And they are willing to take great, great risk to change that situation. And this has been a problem, I think, for the United States from day one in its efforts to support Ukraine in becoming a more Western democracy. Putin has always demonstrated that he is willing to go to the wall for what mm-hmm. he cares about in Ukraine far more than the United States is. Yeah, I mean, I've heard so much over the last few weeks that U.S. troops going into Ukraine to help Ukrainians defend themselves is just not on the table. I wonder, is that still true or will that be true in the future? I mean, you talk about these scenes of what it's like for Ukrainians just in this this first day of, you know, having to cower in, in bomb shelters and being afraid for their lives. And I wonder... 
if things get bad enough, like, will that calculus start to change of whether this is a situation that the U.S. can continue to say, we just don't have enough of a stake here to put troops on the line? Yes. I think that after the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, it's very clear that there's not an appetite for projection of American force into conflicts anymore. I think Putin knows that. And I think the White House understands for very good reason that a direct conflict between American troops and Russian forces when both of these countries are nuclear powers is not tenable. No matter how big of a disaster this is in Ukraine, and it is going to be a disaster, a nuclear war between Russia and the United States or a direct conflict that risks nuclear war is worse for the world. That's a very sad reality, but that is the reality. Paul, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Paul Sony is a national security reporter for The Post. You also heard additional reporting from Siobhan O'Grady, Isabel Kershudian, Whitney Leeming, and Whitney Shefty. There have also been protests in Russia against Putin's decision to attack Ukraine. Demonstrations broke out in almost 50 Russian cities, with some people chanting no to war. According to the human rights group OVD Info, more than a thousand protesters across the country have been arrested so far. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Renny Svernovsky. It was mixed by Ted Muldoon and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.